I want to thank the organizers of this conference on social justice for the invitation to be with you today. Uh, I love the second service because I can slow down, praise God. Reminds me of an old black lady in Sacramento, California. She was in the hospital not doing well. The family came to visit her and the doctor walked into the room, pulled the family off to the side so they could talk about whether they should do heroic measures to keep her alive if something happens. When the family left, the doctor was still in the room writing on some charts and that old 93-year-old lady caught his eye and with her long bony fingers she went like this. When he came over and leaned over she said to him, don't listen to anything they say, you give me all you got. (laughs) So I'm going to try to give you all I got in the next few minutes. I'm coming from a part of God's Word where the Bible tells us about a young lawyer coached by the Pharisees. He had come seeking to confound and confuse Jesus. In modern colloquialism, we would call that a really tall order. Master, he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, what is written in the law? And what do you understand it to mean? The lawyer answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. That's it, said Jesus. You have answered correctly. You do this and you will have eternal life. And then in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, this young lawyer unsolicited, launched into a flawed and flailing effort to defend himself. He then posed a nagging, disconcerting question to Jesus. In fact, it is a question that is still today at the heart of all social strife and ethnic conflict. The young lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, to paraphrase that question in modern parlance, he was asking, when you see people who do not look like you, should we see in them too members of the family of God? Who is my neighbor? Friends, that simple question has always and still today probes the depths of our profession, of our Christian profession and seeks to uncover whether our claims to Christianity are deep or shallow. And that young lawyer did not know it, but his question has hounded the human condition for millennia. Who is my neighbor? Now that word neighbor in the Bible does not mean the person living next door or the family down the street, or someone in your community or zip code. And neither does that word mean racial or ethnic likeness, or proximity to cultural and social class. 
Jesus wanted that lawyer to understand, regardless of ethnicity or color of skin, a person is anyone who needs your help. In answer to this profound question, who is my neighbor? Jesus pulled a story out of the news headlines of his day. A certain man said Jesus was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. They beat him, stripped him of his clothes, and left him for dead. A priest happened to be passing by and saw the beaten man with his eyes pleading for help. The priest hurried his steps, crossed the road, and passed by on the other side. Next came a Levite, a young intern in the ministry. He walked over to the beaten man, bent over to investigate. He saw a man battling for his life, and though his heart was pricked, his head was weighing the liabilities and the risk. Everything in his heart was saying, help this man, but his head was weighing all the what-ifs. What if this is a setup to wound and rob me? What if this man tells other people, I was the one who robbed him? No eyewitnesses here to clear me. Besides, if I do anything that worsens his injury, that means I have a lawsuit on my hands. Convinced of the soundness of his logic and rationale, the young Levite concluded the risks outweighed the benefits, and he too crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Oh, my friends, God watches with intense interest how we treat bruised and battered strangers. And to test our character, God sends hurting people to us, people the world has labeled deficient or undeserving. And then Jesus said, before too long, a Samaritan, one of different culture and ethnicity, came by. The Samaritan went over to the needy man and without regard for his own safety, reached down and picked up that desperate bleeding man. It didn't matter his religion, his ethnicity, his politics. None of that was of any importance or consequence. All he saw was a man who needed his sympathy and compassion. The Samaritan took off his finely tailored garment, wrapped it as a cloak of love and affection around the bloody beaten form of this stranger. He took the oil and wine he was carrying for his journey, prepared a medicinal healing ointment and poured it into this man's wounds. With the creative liniment balm, he cleansed the man's wounds, bandaged them. He then lifted him and placed him on his own beast and began making his way slowly down that dangerous road to Jericho. He carried him to an inn, said Jesus, checked him in, and there stayed up with him all night. All night he watched him, nursed him, comforted him. How extraordinary, such mercy for someone he had never met, such grace and generosity for one who was a total and complete stranger. And when the morning light appeared, the wounded man had improved considerably, but not enough to handle the rigors of travel. 
So the Samaritan went down to the front desk, handed the clerk his American Express card, and said, take care of him. He's my guest. There are no restrictions, no spending limits. I will take care of all incidentals. He's free to order room service. And if he wants to watch the Ten Commandments, put the movie on my bill. I'll pay any extra charges he has incurred. And then Jesus said to the lawyer, now young man, which of these three men proved to be a true neighbor to that man who fell among thieves? Was it the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? The young lawyer still harboring discriminatory sympathies? could not bring himself to say the name Samaritan. Instead, he answered Jesus saying, Sir, his neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. You go and do the same, said Jesus. You know, my favorite writer says, No distinction on account of nationality, race, or caste is recognized by God. He is the maker of all mankind. And as proud as you may be to to be an American, in the courts of heaven, your American passport has no value. Our God does not distinguish his children by place of birth or national origin. And in heaven's eyes, being born again is more important than where you were born. God doesn't see German men or Swedish women. He doesn't see Asian children or African children. God doesn't even see native-born or newly-minted immigrant. None of that matters to God. When God sees us, he sees men, women, and children who belong to him. God estimates men as men, says Ellen White, with him, Character, not color, decides our worth. And because we are all God's children, we cannot be silent when any group of human beings are demonized and treated unfairly. For they too are God's children, even if they are of a different faith. The young man on his harsh pilgrim to Mecca. He's God's child too. The women bathing in the Ganges. The Ganges River. They too are God's children. My mentor in ministry, Elder E.E. Cleveland, used to say to me, remember, better off doesn't mean better than. God once said to me, You know, when your path, my son, becomes one of privilege and you forget the innocent you have left behind, your privilege will soon cease to be a blessing and it will become your greatest curse. Your privilege becomes a curse when you forget those you have left behind. Bishop Desmond Tutu said it this way. He said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, to your fellow man, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. In 1964, 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in accepting the Nobel Peace Prize, he said, we have learned to fly the air like birds and swim the sea like fish, but we have not learned the simple art of living together as brothers. I must tell you, I must tell you, I am concerned for our nation. Because of the anti-pluralistic, hyper-nationalistic trajectory our nation appears to be on. I hope you didn't miss that. Anti-pluralistic. I, I was attending a conservative conference not long ago and the, the outgoing chairman of the board got up and said, in America, he said, diversity is dangerous. We are on an anti-pluralistic, hyper-nationalistic trajectory. It is a troubled and troubling trajectory. And I believe God is going to hold the Christian church accountable for any complicity in this agenda. God is not pleased with the church's embrace of racially polarizing, discordant, divisive rhetoric. And be sure, anti-brotherhood sentiments are actually driving people away from the church and not to it. For 30 years, I have been studying the role the Christian church has played in the systemic victimization of the vulnerable and the oppressed. It seems hard to believe you can even put those words together, but the Christian church has played a role in the systemic victimization of the vulnerable and oppressed. And I must tell you, church history is really not for the faint of heart. As a matter of fact, if you have a conscience, it will break your heart. I believe Jesus told this story because he wanted his church to know the true loving character of his father. And he wanted us to know that to resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of God is the only way to life eternal. You see, for God, profession is as nothing in the scale, says Ellen White. It is character that decides destiny. The Good Samaritan was an example of one person who in his character chose to resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of God. And how we resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of God decides our destiny. I believe in this story. Jesus was teaching us that to be gifted eternal life, we cannot be like the callous priests walking past those who have been beaten down and robbed. To be gifted eternal life, and eternal life is a gift. You can't earn it. <laughs> we cannot be like the heartless Levite turning away from innocent children, children robbed of opportunities and possibilities. To resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of God to the world, we are going to have to help those who have been victimized by systemic inequities. 23 years ago, I started one of the most unique, one of the first ministries of its kind in America called the U.S. Dream Academy. And for the last 23 years, we have been providing tutoring, mentoring, and character building 
to children of incarcerated parents in the United States. There are millions of children in America whose parents are in prison. And these children, through no fault of their own, are fatherless. And they are the most at risk children of going to prison themselves. And for 23 years, we have been providing tutoring and mentoring and character building to these precious, precious children of God. This has been my Good Samaritan ministry to help save thousands of children from the ravages of the criminal justice system. Allow me to share with you a quotation from my favorite author, Ellen White, who once wrote, she said, to obey the law of God means to be quick to see the necessities of our fellow beings and quick to help them without stopping to inquire, do they believe the same doctrines that I believe? To obey God's law, she says, means to act as God's helping hand in relieving the necessities of suffering humanity, no matter what the religious belief of those in need. You don't check their church membership before you help them. And this bold vision that God gave me has consumed my life in ministry and has called upon every bit of fundraising prowess and ability I could develop. I've learned to beg with dignity for these young people. I believe God is calling us to lift the lowly and set the captives free. God is calling us to carry those who have been battered and broken by the inequities of race and class. And I didn't say this in the earlier service, but allow me to share with you one of the most important perspectives and lessons I have learned doing this work. By the age of 30, 60%, I said 60% of every black boy in the United States of America who does not graduate from high school will be in prison by the age of 30. And we look at this and we say, why all these problems in the African-American community? Well, here's what I figured out. God showed it to me. The family is still at the foundation of a healthy community. The family is still at the foundation of a healthy church. And African Americans are the only people group who did not come to this country as families. The Vietnamese come, the Koreans come. African Americans are the only people group who did not come to this country as families, nor could they have families that they could build on their own. Sometimes they were torn apart. My wife, who is with me today, who we've been married 45 years, my wife, we go to her father's gravesite, her family's gravesite. My wife's father, People say, oh, slavery was so long ago. My wife's father was born in 1882. And his father was born earlier in the 1800s a slave. So you have someone sitting in your presence whose grandfather was a slave in America. It wasn't that long ago. 
God showed us and he's trying to tell us a neighbor is anyone who needs your sympathy. Can you have a little sympathy for these young people? There's been a family wound for hundreds of years that has never been healed. Who is your neighbor? Jesus is telling us the suffering and destitute of all classes and all faiths. And it is our duty to relieve their suffering. Ellen White says, as far as possible, God expects us to hear and answer any call of distress from suffering humanity. But sadly, down through the centuries, the Christian church has continually and consistently failed God's test of brotherhood. You know, preparing for this message, my mind ran to the day I spent a few hours in a car riding from London, England to Oxford with Dr. John Stott. Dr. John Stott, a a very respected theologian. He was the chaplain to the Queen of England from 1959 to 1992. And as we rode along, Dr. Stott said to me, you know, he said, when I get to heaven, one of the things I want to talk to God about is that why in the areas of the world where evangelical Christianity was the most dynamic and vibrant, those very areas of the world were breeding grounds for intolerance, racism, violence, and hatred. Where Christianity was strongest, you had intolerance and hatred and violence and racism. And Dr. Stott shared with me the perplexity he felt as a theologian trying to understand why the Christian church seemed to be so consistently throughout history failing the tests of brotherhood. And then he began to school me by going around the globe. He started in Northern Ireland. And if you've never been there, I've been to Belfast, where you had Christians who loved the Lord but hated each other. I actually delivered a narration in Belfast once to both Protestants and Catholics who hated each other. The narration was written by Richard Harris, and it was entitled, There Are Too Many Saviors on My Cross. <laughs> and one line in it says, You crippled children lying in cries on Londonderry streets, pushing your innocence to the full flush face of Christian guns battling the blame on each other. Do not grow tongues in your dying, dumb wounds speaking my name, says Jesus. I am not your prize in your death. You have exorcised me in your game of politics. Another line he says, (laughs) it's a powerful thing in this narration. Jesus says, shame on you for converting me into a bullet and then shooting me into men's hearts. And the last line of the narration says, Our Father, who art in heaven, how sullied be thy name. And then Dr. Stott went down to South Africa. If you've never worshipped in a Dutch Reformed church during apartheid, and we visited South Africa during the apartheid years, you would, oh, by the way, (laughs) When we got our visas to go to South Africa, 
we were able to go because our, in our visas, we were, we were honorary whites. If you've never worshipped in a Dutch Reformed church in South Africa, you would have never known how devoutly and deeply they too love the Lord. And yet, in the Dutch Reformed church's equivalent of their review, their church's official newspaper, listen to what they wrote. They said, one can correctly refer to apartheid as church policy. And this is what they wrote. White guardianship is not so much a right as a high calling. Because we have not just a policy, but a message. The everlasting gospel. And even our own church in South Africa, the Adventist church, we drank the racially spiked Kool-Aid. And one of the most powerful documents I have ever read in my entire life is entitled a statement of confession submitted by the Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Africa to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This document reads, and I read to you, we confess as a church we were altogether too caught up with maintaining our traditional apolitical stance with regard to the separation of church and state to effectively combat the viciousness of apartheid. Our church says we were too caught up in our theology to effectively stand up against apartheid. Under the pressure of the times, they wrote, we allowed the structures of the church to gradually become patterned along the lines of apartheid by providing separate church regional organizations for different racial groups within the church. And we failed to realize that the state demanded of its citizens things to which it had no claim and that as Christians, we should have resisted the usurpation of God's authority to the uttermost. And then it says, we commit ourselves, therefore, once again and all the more earnestly to the proclamation of the eternal gospel of the universality of God's love, the denouncement of the Babylonian captivity of the church in which the church sells its soul to the state, and the articulation of a more effective and clear warning against the worship of the beast, that civil religious concoction of blasphemy, coercion, human arrogance, and injustice that seems to find root too easily among our people. And I must tell you, I hold a special place in my heart for South Africa. Because you see, on February 8, 1990, I landed in Johannesburg. February 9th, I was in the offices of the president of South Africa, President F.W. de Klerk. In walked Pick Botha. He said to us, you've come a long way to tell us apartheid is wrong. And then he said, you're preaching to the choir. We know it's wrong. He didn't tell us that the next day he had a secret meeting with Nelson Mandela 
to inform him that he was suddenly going before the press to announce that the following day he would be released from prison. So as a consequence, I was there in the crowd to welcome Nelson Mandela when he came out of prison. Well, from South Africa, Dr. Stott in that car, he ended up in the Bible Belt of America. Where founding fathers of this country were able to have the Bible in one hand and the chains of slaves in the other. Where Christianity and oppression were wedded in a religio-political nuptial. And now I've never met Dr. I never met Dr. Martin Luther King. I, I was blessed to know his wife. My wife and I had dinner with her a few times. And I keep close to me an eloquent speech of his. I want to read you just a portion of it. Listen to what he wrote. He said, we cannot have an enlightened democracy with one great group living in ignorance. We cannot have a healthy nation with one-tenth of the people ill-nourished, sick, harboring germs of disease, germs of disease which recognize no color lines and who obey no Jim Crow laws. We cannot have a nation orderly and sound with one group so ground down and thwarted that it is almost forced into unsocial attitudes and crime. We cannot be truly Christian people so long as we flaunt the central teachings of Jesus' brotherly love and the golden rule. We cannot come to full prosperity as a nation with one great group so ill-delayed that it cannot buy goods. So, as we gird ourselves to defend democracy from foreign attack, let us see to it that increasingly at home we give fair play and free opportunity for all people. Then he said the spirit of Abraham Lincoln still lives, that spirit born of the teachings of the Nazarene who promised mercy to the merciful, who lifted the lowly, strengthened the weak, ate with publicans and made the captives free. In the light of this divine example, the doctrines of demagogues shiver in their chaff. And then he wrote, already closer understanding links Saxon and Friedman in mutual sympathy. America, he wrote, experiences a new birth of freedom in her sons and daughters. She incarnates the spirit of her martyred chief. Their loyalty is repledged. Their devotion renewed to the work he left unfinished. And then he said, My heart throbs anew in the hope that inspired by the example of Lincoln imbued with the spirit of Christ that they, our young people, will cast down the last barrier to perfect freedom and that I, with my brother of blackest hue, possessing at last my rightful heritage and holding my head erect, may stand beside the Saxon as a Negro and yet a man. The reason I said I keep this speech close to my heart is because that amazing speech of Dr. King, from which I have read just a portion, was written and delivered by Dr. King in April of 1944, when Dr. King was only 15 years old. And finally, Dr. Stott, in his last sermon before he died, he said, after all my theological writings, all the books I've authored and the sermons I've preached, I only have one thing to leave with you, 
One thing to leave to you, he said, it is Christ-likeness. Resemble, reflect, reveal the character of Christ. He said, it is the will of God for the people of God. And I believe until we as a church make becoming like the character of Christ the central theme of our theology. Until we make becoming like the character of Christ the central theme of our theology, we as a people will never resemble, reflect and reveal the character of Christ and brotherhood for us will be a distant dream. Until Christ's likeness becomes the central teaching, living focus of the church, we as a people will never resemble, reflect and reveal the character of God to the stranger. And think of it, think of it. Almost no Christian denomination has Bible studies on becoming like the character of Christ. Did you know that? Almost no Christian denomination has held up Christ's likeness as its central teaching, preaching focus. Even our own church. As a pastor, I used to say, Lord, why are members so hard and mean and cold and unchristlike? Did you ever stop to think? How is it that of our 28 fundamental beliefs, love is not one of them? Love is not one of our 28 fundamental beliefs. And in God's kingdom, how much more fundamental can you get than loving your neighbor as yourself? Because becoming like the loving character of Christ has not been among our theological essentials and imperatives. And I've been warning people for years that throughout history the world has been plagued with the horror and barbarity, the perennial plague of Christians who are not Christ-like. The Puritans, you've heard of them. They were Christians who were not Christ-like. Did you know that the Puritans punished people by disemboweling people alive? and peeling the skin off of their heads and faces while they were alive. One of the great historians called it the shocking barbarity of Puritan America. They were Christians who were not Christ-like. Martin Luther, the great reformer, you've heard of him. He called Jews dogs, devils. He said their wealth was to be confiscated. Their synagogues and and homes were to be burned to the ground. Martin Luther said, God will not hold it against us if we kill them all. He was a Christian, but he was not Christ-like. During one of the last election cycles, I heard the pastor of a large Christian megachurch in Dallas, Texas say, We're not looking for a president who is Christ-like. He said, we are looking for, and I quote, the meanest, toughest SOB we can find. Oh, my friends, this world today needs more than ever to see Christians who resemble, who reflect, 
and who reveal the character of God. Christians who are not committed to resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of God can never love one another. And Ellen White says, the Christians who do not resemble the character of God are doing the greatest damage to the cause of God in the earth. She says, how terrible it is for anyone to bear his name and then give to the world through a defective character, a distorted image of Christ. You are a stumbling block, she says. Oh, my friends, to be a Christian means to be Christ-like. And if the truth, look at what Lord says. She says, if the truth you profess do not change the heart and transform the character, she said, all the truths you believe are of no value to you. To resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of God is the most important work you can do in your life. And so as we teach others about the second coming, we love to teach others about the second coming, amen, and the arrival of Jesus. My prayer is that we will have equal emphasis on preparing our characters to depart. We we teach about his arrival. You have to prepare your character to depart with him. After all, what does it matter if you know the details of prophecy, but in your character, you're not prepared for the fulfillment of prophecy? What sense does that make? And then I leave you, the servant of God says, the glory of heaven is lifting up the fallen, comforting the distressed. And wherever Christ abides in human hearts, he will be revealed in the same way. And I love this. She says, God reveals himself to those who are striving to form characters he can approve. Woo! I love that. God reveals himself. When you are striving to build and form characters he can approve. There are too many who believe that because we are saved by grace, we don't have to resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of God. I humbly ask you, where is that scripture found? And I leave you with this. She says, it is not faith that claims the favor of heaven without complying with the conditions upon which mercy is to be granted. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help other people and bless other people springs, springs constantly from within your soul. Oh, may God bless us as we commit ourselves all day, every day, no excuses that we are going to strive to resemble, to reflect, and reveal to the world the character of Christ. I'm telling you, God wants Sabbath keepers to resemble and reflect and reveal his character. Because if you have the Sabbath and don't have his character, what's the point? Pray with me. Father, Father, thank you. Thank you for this challenge. Thank you for this call. 
Open our eyes so that we might see. We have been minoring in major things and majoring in minor things. We have not held up your character. The reason Jesus came to earth was to reveal to us the true loving character of his Father. And he wants us to stand and show before men, men, women, and children, that we resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of God. May this be our truth and our blessing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.